Bretto, for years our Sydney-based wellness couch fans have been saying, when are you coming to Sydney? Oh, they've been banging the door down, MP. Well, Sydney Ciders, we'll be in your neck of the woods on Saturday, June the 2nd. We're going out of the CBD, we're heading straight down the highway to the regions of the Illawarra and the beautiful town of Kiama for our third and final wellness base camp of the year. Join Fuad Kassab from Quirky Cooking to talk all about food, naturopath, gut guru and female health extraordinaire, Helen Patteron. Stress is a hot topic with Dr. Maria Zushman and you and I, Bretto, are talking about succeeding at life and love and work at the same time as succeeding in health because there is no wellness in a life that doesn't feel good. Zazen Alkaline Water presents the Wellness Base Camp, one full day of inspiration and education on Saturday, June 2 from 10 till 5. There's over 1,000 bucks in door prizes, a raft of world-class local exhibitors and a room full of people just like you. Bring a buddy and get two tickets for the price of one before they're all gone. All details and tickets at thewellnessbasecamp.com. That's thewellnessbasecamp.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to 100 Not Out, featuring your hosts, Dr. Damien Christoph and Marcus Pierce. Welcome to 100 Not Out, a weekly show dedicated to helping you master the art of aging well. My name is Marcus Pierce, and it gives me great pleasure, as always, to bring on the fabulous co-founder of The Wellness Couch and The Wellness Guys, the great man himself, my brother from another mother, Dr. Damien Christoph. Hello, legend. G'day, Pierce. How are you, mate? I am absolutely flying, but more than anything, we are extremely fortunate, great man, to have on 100 Not Out music royalty on the episode yeah. today. A massive shout out to Sam Gowing from Food Health Wealth for making this interview possible by really falling in love with our guest today. Normie Rowe AM was Australia's undisputed first king of pop back in the 1960s. He was the first Australian artist to ever have two top three singles simultaneously for three consecutive weeks. He had 11 top 10 hits. Normie Rowe and the Playboys supported Roy Orbison in the US, represented Australia alongside the Seekers at Expo 67 in Montreal, and lay claim to the biggest selling Australian single of the 1960s with K Sarah Sarah. Today's interview is not all about music though, because behind the glitz of the glamour of being a rock star, Normie has experienced more than his fair share of hardships to share the ups and the downs of an incredible life that is still going strong at 71 Not Out. It is a very warm welcome to the great Normie Rowe AM. Normie, welcome to 100 Not Out. Thank you very much and good day, gentlemen. Oh, normally, we almost needed a crowd there. Like we needed some applause and some whistles, maybe some <laughs> bras or knickers thrown onto the stage because I'm sure that would have happened to you back in the old days, Normie. Well, after that intro, I might as well hang up because <laughs> we don't we don't need to be saying anything more. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Normie. Hey, Normie, you're a Melbourne man, which I love, and so does Pissy because we're you know we're. We're both Melbourne men. Uh, but you now live up on the Goldie, um, Gold Coast, uh, which yes, is close the most to northern, The most northern suburb of Melbourne, the Gold Coast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. You've obviously chased a little bit of sunshine up there and, and a little bit of Sam as well. Um, how did Australia's king of pop find love in music growing up in the 40s and 50s? Uh, well, I, I suppose... Uh, 
as a little kid, my mum was always singing. She came from a family of, of you know, uh, about 11 or 12 kids, um, and they all went to the Maydowns. Well, the girls went to the Maydowns Dancing School, which still exists today, funnily enough. Uh, and, uh, and so mum would have been well into her 90s at the moment had she still been alive. So uh, that was a long time ago. Uh, and I think had it been not for things like, um, you know, the end of the second, the First World War into the, uh, the Depression and then the Second World War, uh, I think, the, you know, mum or some of her sisters at least might have ended up being tiddly dancers or singers or, or entertainers of some sort. Mum was quite a singer, uh, and we really we re- rarely had a Saturday night where there wasn't something full of joy, happiness, music, uh, um, and, uh, you know, generally fun and laughter and gregarious, outgoing sort of uh, lifestyle. Normie, you went really from, you, you obviously had, a, as you just mentioned, a major upbringing with music around you, but the, the story that is absolutely fascinating to me, who was born in 1981, is looking at someone that was really Australia's rock god in the 60s, and then you were conscripted to Vietnam. And there is a school of thought from what I understand that it might have been a PR exercise, just like many believe that Elvis being um, sent off to war was a PR exercise. But whatever the case may be, um, you spent over two years with the army. You came back to a completely different national sentiment than what you went over to Vietnam with. The people that had originally been buying your records and coming to your concerts were now almost hurling abuse at you and the thousands of Vietnam vets, essentially just for being conscripted through no fault of of your own, but for our listeners like myself that might not have been alive during this time, um, or you know, we we've struggled to truly grip what happened. Can you explain and educate us on what exactly took place? Well, it's amazing what propaganda could do. Um, out of Harvard University came there was a whole left wing school of thought, and it and spilled over to Monash University in its early days in in the 60s in, in Melbourne. Um, and the kids at that stage, they were used to being a little bit rebellious, you know, through the rock and roll, greasy hairstyle, uh, bodgies and widgies sort of time. And, and they, was, they were still, I, I think in many ways, searching, and as kids do today, search for their own generational identity. And uh, and and so they bought into this. What I I looked at as a as a bit of a hula hoop craze or a a yo yo craze, where you know all of a sudden everybody either had a hula hoop, a yo yo, or they were part of a moratorium march. And if you ever talk to them <laughs> about it, they they actually had no idea why they were they'd gone to the streets. I mean, there were some people who had a reasonable, um, you know, grip on some of the things that were going on, but most of them didn't have a bloody clue, you know. They just joined in as if it was, uh, you know, just another pop record that they bought. So, uh, you know, and, and, and of course, a lot of the performers uh, also bought into that because it was expedient. 
uh, you know, you had uh, um, uh, the real thing, which was written by Johnny Young, um, and and that was when you look at the the um, uh, Russell Morris's film clip, there was largely uh, you know Armageddon um, portrayed in it. Uh, in, the, in the clip, and then there was Ronnie Burns, also written by Johnny Young as uh, Ronnie Burns' uh, smiley. You're off to the Asian War, and we won't see you smile no more. Um, mm. and, and, and by the way, which was a song John, about you, wasn't John it, Young? Don? Yeah, well, John Young. That's what I was about to say. John Young uh, uh, informed me about. Well, I suppose it was about 20 years ago now, but still 20 years into the life of the song. Uh, that that he wrote that about me because he had absolutely no idea uh, anything about the Vietnam War, and Ronnie wanted a song about the Vietnam War. So wow. that's how how that came about. Um, but there were, you know, there was. It was one of those. Um, it was sort of like a movement that every. It was a. It was a hayride, you know. Everybody wanted to jump on the hayride because it looked like good fun. But I'm, I, I, I'm quite convinced that few people knew what the Vietnam War was about. And, in fact, I think uh, history has been written by the wrong people to a certain extent because the Vietnam War, uh, from my observations and, and in my 2020 hindsight, was more about uh, fighting the Cold War in microcosm uh, than it was about anything pretty much else that was going on. I, I don't even know if the politicians realised that that was so. But in, in, in many ways, I think we were pretty fortunate that, uh, that the free world forces, and it wasn't just Australia and the US, there were a whole lot of other countries involved in Vietnam, and uh, it's sort of lucky that they were involved there because they were there for 10 years. The Soviet bloc countries, uh, well, Russia, wanted warm water ports. Uh, all they had was places like Gdansk and, uh, you know, the, the Siberian ports, which were all uh, winter ports. Uh, they were only summer ports. They needed warm water ports through the year so they could feed what was clearly uh, a huge, uh, if not... Uh, if not total uh, socialist uh, uh, pol political leaning, it was certainly as left as it had ever been on the Western Pacific Rim, all the way from from Thailand, uh, even Vietnam, Laos and uh, Burma, uh, all the way down through to New Zealand. Australia was so left, well, the La Labor Party was so left in its, uh, uh, in its platform that the Communist Party ceased to exist and it hasn't existed in Australia since. Uh, <laughs> they, had, they, they had no policies because the Labor Party had, had adopted them through people like Jim Cairns. And, uh, and, and you know, it was, it, it was, uh, uh, it was farcical uh, in, in so many ways to see these people just leap onto this thing without thinking about it. Mm. Well, you, um, so, you, when you go over there and you're a young fellow and you're doing all this work and you, you're seeing this massive conflict and you get back into Australia, the world's changed, um, you were the king of pop and you come back in and Johnny Farnham was the new king of pop. 
Now, I hate to say that because, um, you know, my mum has your records and uh, she doesn't have any of Johnny Farnham, so I've got to tell you. Um, and But you had to pivot and renovate your career. How hard was it to accept that and then go on to carve out a new career? How did you go with that one? Oh, look, you know, I, I, I had spent a year in England and I was every week reading the magazines like Melody Maker and New Musical Express and uh, Fab Magazine, or, or all the pop magazines uh, that were published in London at the time. And I realised very quickly that the only people who had front page stories were the people who were at number one at the time. And they just fed off the, the success and the, and the large scale sales of whoever was uh, the flavour of, wasn't even the flavour of the month anymore, it was virtually the flavour of the week. So I didn't, I, I couldn't really, uh, in, in in analysis, uh, realise that and not realise that my time could very well be limited as well. Uh, but the thing is, I'd spent a year in England. I came back, I did one tour uh, for, of six months, went into the army. I had two years in the army. There's three years out of out of uh, the the most prominent part of uh, a, a pop singer's life uh and uh, and and the the opportunities that ended up going begging in in the uk for international success uh had all gone you know and and the infrastructure had gone the management had gone the band had gone uh the kids were had moved on to people like pink zoot um, and and soon to be taken up by all the artists who were becoming quite uh, popular and famous through uh, happening 70, 71, 72 and, uh, and Countdown. Uh, and while I was getting a little bit of uh, the happening shows on the Saturday morning, I, I never appeared in the 70s in, on Countdown in one episode, not once. Uh, because I was deemed as um, the poison chalice, I guess. But no, the interesting thing about this is that you didn't you didn't let it define you in terms of just giving up and retreating from the world. It, for, from my understanding, and again, it's before my time, but from my understanding, you pivoted marvelously into theatre and TV, particularly. Um, and won great acclaim in, in works like Les Mis. Um, you played Daddy Warbucks in Annie. Um, you, uh, you, you perform roles in Evita and Chess. It's not as if you just uh, sat back and, and cracked it at, at what had passed you by in your time in Vietnam. And what we tend to find, particularly in interviewing, um, where you've interviewed a number of survivors from the Holocaust, and, and they tend to find that a part of that um, that. Uh, that pivoting or, or um, moving on with their life is the ability to realise that they can't change what's happened in the past. They can sit and moan and, and the, the Holocaust survivors tell us that there are hundreds of thousands of people that are still living in a Holocaust because they're refusing to move on. Like how do, how do you actually begin to, accept is not a word that I use easily, but how do you begin to either forgive what's occurred or accept what's occurred and then and pick yourself up and carry on because that, that takes a lot of courage and you cl- clearly had the courage to do it. Well, it's a bit like the, um, the 12 Steps program, you know, give me the courage to, or, or courage and ability to change the things I can and the, uh, 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 and the in- intellect, I guess, 
uh, to know to know the things I can't change, and then uh, deal with life that way. Uh, I once ran into, or I went to see a guy speak who was in a wheelchair. He'd been in three plane crashes. He was burnt to smithereens. He he looked only remotely like a human being. His name was W. Full stop Mitchell. Um, and uh, he inspired me a great deal. Uh, and his his mantra basically was, is, it's not the cards you're dealt, it's the way you play the hand. Uh, and I look back at book uh, back in my life and I said, yeah, I guess that's the way I, I did it. What whatever was there, I had to deal with. When I when I came back from Vietnam, uh, I also met my first wife. Um, we in our first year of marriage uh, had a little boy. Uh, so I had to become a bit more responsible. I started working in clubs in Sydney, which at that time were were a great source of income for performers. I wasn't great at it when I started, but I was damn good at it by the time I finished with the, the clubs thing. And uh, I, I gained a lot of skills in working in those clubs that the people who started off working in rock and roll dances and went to rock and roll pub band type uh, uh, pub rock, um, they they just even today some of those artists I look at them and they're, and they're still doing what they were doing when they were eighteen and nineteen and, and in the meantime I've had an incredible uh, a, 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 a coloration of, of a fabric of a life you know in uh, working life in being able to do these cabaret things. Big, big concerts, you know, with hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, small. I, I guess one of the one of the things I realised I'd achieved a certain amount of skill was I was working in a place called the Galaxy Nightclub in Melbourne, and and you'd you'd work in Melbourne, you'd probably do oh, maybe ten or twelve gigs in a week, and about five of those would be at the Galaxy. Uh, was that at Crown? Done, was this after Crown or before Crown? Uh, oh, way before any before Crown. notion of, of let's rip the, the general public off for uh, <laughs> of any, any money they've got yeah, yeah. to spend yes. on their kids' clothes. Yes. Uh, and the Galaxy uh, didn't really get underway until about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, um, and it was always full of the most uh, the seediest characters you'd ever seen in your life. And and they didn't care what was on the on the dance floor for the floor show, um, and one night I, I got a standing ovation and I thought I've made it, I now am a very competent floor show artist, which was you know it, it was a, a big thing because <clears throat> I was lining myself up with with people like uh, Kamal who was doing e- extraordinary things in a in 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 a, a, a large cabaret event, Don Lane, those sort of people. Barry Crocker was sensational, and here I am. I'm I'm still a pop rock and roll singer, uh, trying to tra- transform myself into this other entity. And then one day I realised that I was a cabaret hack, so I decided to go off to drama school. And I went to drama school. I was the I was the oldest person. In the class, I was 17 years older than the next oldest person who was 20. I was 37 years old and started uh, off with Hayes Gordon in Sydney, um, one of the great 
acting mentors, mentor to, to Jack Thompson and Lorraine Bailey and Henry Zepps and a whole range of very successful Australian uh, actors. And, uh, and from out of that, uh, I was almost finished my time and uh, uh, he asked me to, to play a part in a play, a professional play. And so I started off, <coughs> pardon me, my acting career at, at the Ensemble uh, in Sydney and I, I played the part of Vinnie Gray, a, a faded rock star. So I had plenty, <laughs> I had plenty of uh, emotional content to draw from. Uh, then I went to uh, out of out of out of that into Sons and Daughters for nearly two years. I finished Sons and Daughters as it folded, uh, playing opposite Abigail. And as soon as I finished that, I landed the role of Jean Valjean in Les Misérables, which went for two years, two and a half years with the rehearsal process, and. Um, after that, you know, pretty much uh, the rest is now we're well and truly into the 80s and early 90s. But it's fabulous, though, and this is where I think your example is so powerful, is your ability to transform and take responsibility. You mentioned that you were the oldest mm. by many years at, at drama school, and so many people say, I'm too old to do this, and I'm too old to do that. And I just think that it's, it's remarkable that literally Australia's original king of pop says, you know what? I need to learn more. I, I, I take responsibility that my skills aren't as great as they could be. I'm going to go to drama school. That is just that is absolutely inspirational. One thing that you mentioned, and I've just got one more what I'd call really tough question, and then I think we've got a few more lighter ones. But you did mention um, uh, back in the early 70s the birth of your of your first child, who I believe is Adam, who tragically passed away age eight in 1979, um, accidentally knocked down by a motorist whilst riding home from his school fate. I can't even imagine what that is like. My oldest child is eight years of age, Normie. Um, I can't even imagine what, what that is like. I suppose there's there's a couple of things in here. How do you, for those people that, that are experiencing some level of trauma that are listening to this right now, whether it's something that you've experienced like that, whether it's something like post-traumatic stress disorder that you've already spoken about in the past about um, you, you attempted to take your own life nearly 20 years ago. Um, 10% of Vietnam vets died in the first five years on returning. Some of these major traumatic experiences in your life, um, what do you say to those people that, having gone through what you've gone through, what do you say to those people that are experiencing some level of, of PTSD or, or trauma after an event such as, um, as we've said, what you've gone through? Well, first, first of all, dealing with the loss of a, of a child um, you know, I, I, I would never, ever suppose that I would know how any person feels, even though I've been through that particular thing myself. I know how I felt. Uh, I don't even know how my first wife felt, uh, really, because, you know, how can you ever know? How anybody else feels. All you, all you feel, really, is is some sort of, um, some sort of uh, connection. I guess you know, it's not even an understanding. But, uh, all, and all you can offer is is to say, you know, every day uh, that I every if you you just don't think as often about that lost person as you might have uh, when they were with you and uh, 
you know, early into their demise. But every time you do think of them, it's as fresh as it was the day that it all happened. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it, whilst it's, it's uh, constantly said that they shall not grow old as we who are left grow old uh, and, and pertain to those who served in wars, you know, if anybody who lost a young person in their life, uh, the same thing applies. And so that's all, that's all I can say. They will always be with you. They'll always be with you. It's not a consolation prize. It's just a matter of fact. Um, and, uh, and you're here and they wouldn't want you to meet your demise because they met theirs, if you know what I mean. So in a lot of ways, you know, I look at my little grandson and I, I have this, this feeling of it seems to me that Adam touched not only my little grandson but certainly my son, uh, my, my second boy, uh, Sam, because there is so much in those kids that remind me of, of exactly who Adam was at eight years old. It's, it's quite a, an amazing thing. And the girls, uh, I'm sure, were also, <laughs> when I say I'm sure, I feel that before they were born, they were once again touched by uh, the spirit of Adam or whatever that is, you know. Um, uh, I'm, not, I'm not terribly convinced there's a hereafter or a prior moment but um but to me uh i think some things live in dna mm. yeah okay it gets passed on through it's uh th- you, there's so much wisdom in what you've just said there normie and i reckon that um, a lot of people will take a lot from that and i'm going to replay that and listen to that again because there's some really great um gold nuggets in there mate um and thank you and it sounds like you really uh, you're very in touch with yourself and um and if it wasn't for one of our good friends here on the wellness couch sam gowing we wouldn't even be doing this interview and uh and you guys have been going together for three or more years and uh, so which is which is great because a lot of people get to you know middle parts of their life 60 plus and they kind of go oh well you know i've had my relationships that's enough for me but you guys are madly in love in your 70s what does sammy mean to you oh look uh, sam i've never i've never met a woman like her uh, you know she <laughs> She and her brother owned a pub in Collingwood when she was 24. She was the youngest female publican in Australia, in Collingwood, in Smith Street, Collingwood, uh, in Melbourne. Which pretty is, rough. You know, like, pretty rough back then. It's Jeepers. a big, big ask, and turned it into the first, I suppose, the first boutique dining hotel, uh, probably in, in the entire country. Um, and uh, it became the home of the Collingwood Football Club for quite some time. And, uh, and, and she uh, has this incredible wit. And uh, I, I think the fun that we have and, uh, and, and the connection that, that Sam and all of my friends get, they all love her. My family loves her. And everybody thinks that, that uh, like the kids – they they get so upset that like I'm in Melbourne at the moment and and my my grandkids are so upset because she had to go back to the Gold Coast and and work after the match yesterday on Anzac Day you know um, and, and she's she's in a very 
she's a very attractive human being, if you know what I mean. And I, I, I don't mean in a visual sense. Um, some people can be visually pleasing, and when you meet them, they're quite unattractive people. Yeah. Um, but uh, Samantha is the complete antithesis of that. So it's it's uh, it's it's great fun to have somebody who uh, she's she's very supportive, um, and in her own right, she is uh, as you you guys know she is quite a genius, and uh, has the runs on the board. She can play in, on a break. The 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 uh, most of the. I hesitate to use the word because I think it's a bit of an oxymoron, celebrity chefs. Uh, she would know more about nutrition and how to how to feed yourself well than any five of them put together, I would have thought. Absolutely. And you're uh, spot on. She's wise beyond uh, her years and she's beautiful inside and out. I sure. suppose the... The, the final question, Normie, is what's the next chapter? Again, you're 71 years young. You show no sign of of um, leaving the stage. You've just been uh, performing a, a sold-out concerts of We Will Rock You alongside Ben Elton or being opened by Ben Elton over in the West. Um, your star is still rising. So what's next? I've got to say that was uh, a period of time of the best fun that I've had on stage for the last... Oh, I don't know, for the last 20 years, I think, you know, we had a fantastic band. We had a, just an amazing group, about 120 on stage for the finale. Um, we had uh, some some great young performers from Western Australia. I was the only temporary uh, and, and honorary sand groper. Uh, and, and it was as good as anything that I've ever seen on a stage anywhere in the world. Uh, and, and that that includes LA Miz and in New York and and the, um, the West End, mind you. I think ours was better than that anyway. Uh, the, the, these <laughs> kids are incredibly talented, and and I think uh, if given a bit of support from federal and state and in even local governments, we can have an incredibly healthy performing arts, arts sector uh, and and indeed a show business, which unfortunately hasn't been so over the last uh, 25 years. Um, but uh, I don't know, what what's next for me? I, I, I'd love to do some more theatre. I'd like to do some more acting. Um, we're planning to do a, a, a one or two uh, solo theatrical things um, in the near future. Uh, after that, who knows? You know, just uh, I'm, the best thing to do is to stay healthy and and uh, keep inspired. And things come to your mind, and you say, "Oh, that sounds good. Let's do that." Oh, you're an absolute gem, and we can't nice. wait to see what the next chapter holds. I must say, to find out more about Normie and to and to book him book him in for your next function, go to Normie Row. Dot com dot mm. au. But Normie, sincerely, thanks so much for being so generous with your time and sharing um, you know, some real deep and meaningful parts of your life because I think on this episode or this podcast, we like to um, you know, open the curtain just beyond what people see on the stage and on the TV uh, and to really see what goes on behind the curtain. So thanks for your honesty and your wisdom and as we like to wish all of our guests on 100 Not Out, Normie Rowe, may the rest of your life be the best of your life. Uh-huh. Thanks very much, fellas, and uh, the same to you. 
and all of the people listening to your podcast. Thanks, Norman. Thank Damo, as always, thank you. Great man. Uh, for more info on Damo, head on over to damienchristoff.com, myself, marcuspierce.com.au. Big shout out to everyone that makes this podcast possible. Joseph Tomo, our editor, Rosie Garner, who does our social media, and to you, our loyal listeners. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can head on over to thewellnesscouch.com forward slash 100 not out. Give this podcast a five-star rating in the iTunes store. And for you, our wonderful listeners, until next week, continue to make the rest of your life the best of your life. This year, the Wellness Summit returns. I realized in this time that I couldn't keep waiting for love from other people. I couldn't keep expecting love from other sources. But I had to give that to myself. Yanni says, I don't care if everyone says that the kitchen is the woman's world. He says, I'm going to prepare food. I love my own cheese. I love my own wine. I don't care what you think of my new flat screen TV. He just loves company. I started asking myself more often, what do I want? Such a simple question, isn't it? But when you think that, and I'm sure all of you sitting there, when you think that, something springs into your mind. And there's something there that you want that you haven't been doing for yourself. Brett Hill and Marcus Pierce feature at the 2018 Wellness Summit. Bigger and better than ever. Tickets on sale Friday, May 4 at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.